five, six figures. It just really turns me off when I see language like that. I said, it, it, I'm not interested. Okay, I need to pay my bills and everything, but you are definitely not going to motivate me when you start throwing money and start saying it's about money. So I think that was one of the things. And from my time in the prison service, said the, you can be extraordinarily successful in what you do if you stick to your values and act within those. And you can do it in an environment that might be is really constraining. As you say, the prisons are a constraining environment, but there's a lot of freedom within those constraints. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Today's guest is Scott Hunter. He's the founder of the Innovate Crowd, and the Innovate Crowd has a very simple mission to change the perception of learning in organizations. Scott supports learning and development professionals to become more influential, to get more impact within their budget. He's also the creator of the Influential Leadership Model and is a coach and facilitator. Um, one of the things that really kind of intrigued me about you, Scott, when I first met you was that you were unusual in the in the community that we met, which was exchange uh, in that you are based in the UK. So that for me was something that I just thought, OK, I need to get to know this guy because um, it was you, me and maybe one or two others. And then when we met in a breakout room, I just thought, you know what, it's more than just about location. Actually, there's a lot of substance to Scott and I want to know him for who he is and what he does and, and all of these other things. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I think you bring lots of gifts into my life. And so before we do anything else, I just want to acknowledge you for that. You might not see it, but it's definitely true. And uh uh, I just think, uh, you know, every time I have a, a challenge or there's just something that I want to unpack with somebody, you're in my kind of like top five people to to ask. You might not have known that, you might not want to accept it, but you're always still going to be on that list. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So welcome, Scott. And uh, it's lovely to, to see you and to hear from you. Um, so... Tell me a little bit about the kind of first career that you had, because you spent a lot of time in prison. You might want to say I had the keys. <laughs> well, indeed, but I kind of put it like that because it's a little bit more, uh, there's more intrigue when you say it like that. <laughs> I just want to clarify the point. Yeah, so, um, well, my first career was in the in a bank. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I see. Well, I, I kind of keep that secret because um, international man of mystery, you see. So, um, no, I worked in a bank for four years and absolutely hated it. Uh, I worked for I worked in the bank for four years and I spent two years trying to get out. Um, so you escaped to work in prison? 
Yes. And I think the reason is, is the bank was corporate and it was a very much, you had to do it this way. You had to do this. And it was driven by targets and you had to act in a certain way. You had to look a certain way. So it was trying to make it. And I think that was the, the problem with it. It just made everybody seem to be, everyone had to be the same. And so at least when you work in a prison, you rely on yourself to get through the day. If they encourage you to be you. Mm. It's all about personality. It's all about relationship building. So, um, I think that's one of the reasons I went in there because it's not, it's not a career, is it? When you're at school, who wants to, what do you want to do when you grow up? If you haven't got friends or family in that, it's a really an unknown type of career, really. It, it, it is. But I, and I suppose for me that, I mean, I, I just developed another layer of respect for you when I watched the, um, uh, the short BBC series called Time, which is about somebody um, essentially kind of committing a, a drunk driving crime, um, ending up uh, very sadly killing someone. And I think they were a teacher and then they end up in prison. And you watch the relationships between uh, that person and the prison guards. And then you also see the tension that the guards have in terms of how they manage um, the inmates and and just kind of exploring that from a number of different angles for me was just really mind-blowing and um i i've visited um prison a couple of times for some work that i was doing when i um used to do kind of private finance initiative projects and i was doing some research on design quality and uh it's it's a very kind of um tense and controlled atmosphere and it, and it has to be like that for a reason, I think. Um, but then at the same time, there's a lot that I got the impression that there was a lot that's done to support people. And this isn't a conversation about kind of, you know, what can we do and the challenges that are in in the prison sector. But I think for for you to be able to be in in any job for, I think you said 18 years, is that right? Yes, 18 years. Yeah, I mean, maybe what I'm trying to say is to be in any job for 18 years is incredibly um, admirable. And so uh, something that I'd, I'd love to ask you is um, what were the kind of key lessons that, that you got out of um, the, the time that you had there? I think one of the biggest takeaways for me is your principles and values are the most important thing you can have as a human being because um, if you actually look and it shows you how long how long it would I can still remember so if you look at the prison services values or mission statement it was we help now I might this might not be quite word for word it says it helps the public by keeping in custody those committed by the courts helping them lead the law-abiding lives in custody and after release so if you actually look at that as a mission statement it's a very admirable mission statement I think when I joined and I, I sort of kind of bought into that and said you know what prison isn't the punishment Going to prison is a punishment. Prison itself isn't. So I think for me to stay true to what I believed in and my 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 principles and my values was challenging at times. And the easy option would be maybe to to not do that and to sort of go with some of the some of the pressures of the job and stuff. But I think to stay within your values uh, and be consistent within them. So it gave me an awful lot. I think of resilience, individual resilience, because it was a hard journey in times. It was. Mm-hmm. Some parts of it are really hard, but to stay there, I think that's where you get an, an awful lot of inner strength and thing. And said, "No, it might it might be a crap day, but I can hand on heart say what I'm doing is okay because it's in line with what I think is right." So I think it helped me uncover in myself what was important to me, and that still drives me now. What I'm trying to do moving forward is about having that 
those that values and that purpose and building that trust through relationships that enables you to make an impact yeah absolutely and 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 i can see how um you uh kind of a value driven in the role that you're doing there and actually a, a va- very value driven right now in the work that you're doing so so that's kind of kind of like a nice segue to to ask you what is it that you um are working on at the moment in terms of the innovate crowd and um you you've created a kind of influence uh, influential leadership model um i'd love to know what were the values that kind of made you want to go into into that kind of work well i think several reasons so to me everything we do in business is about relationships i think we too too often we forget about that and work should be nourishing and enriching it shouldn't be destroying um for people doing the jobs like running businesses but also businesses shouldn't be about profit they should be about making a positive impact profit is the the nice to have that is the enabler for them to continue to make an impact. So I think that was the, the kind of thing that drove me is that it's not all about the money. And I, I read, read websites and people said, oh, you want to make six figures. It just really turns me off when I see language like that. I said, it, it, I'm not interested. Okay, I need to pay my bills and everything, but you are definitely not going to motivate me when you start throwing money and start saying it's about money. So I think that was one of the things. And from my time in the prison service, said the, you can be extraordinarily successful in what you do if you stick to your values and act within those. And you can do it in an environment that might be is really constraining. As you say, the prisons are a constraining environment, but there's a lot of freedom within those constraints. Mm. Um, and I think if you use values as your guiding principle, it allows you to, to do what you think is right in line with the rules and regulations that we have. We don't have to blindly follow rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of done it. And then I looked at, it's all up to me, it's about relationships in my experience. So I created this model and there's three steps. It's just been re, rehashed a little bit at the moment. Uh, so the first one is purpose. And so why, why was it that somebody said to me once, why do you breathe? Gosh, that's such a deep question <laughs> for real, you know, and, and, and I think just the way it's what a few words, why do you breathe four words? And I think so profound. So, so let me ask you, and I, I, and I realize I've stopped you in your tracks, but Scott, why do you breathe? I breathe to help. And it can sound like it's, um, so I think I breathe to support other people making the impact they want. Mm. And how do you do that? By going through this process of helping people understand why do they breathe and mainly small business owners, um, say, okay, why, why did, why did you create your business? What's important for you in this business? What the values and then helping people respond in a way that's aligned to that rather than reacting. So giving them tools to, have that space to think instead of just reacting mm. and understanding what trust is. Um, so a question I ask people as well is why are you worthy of somebody's trust? Because mm. the word is trustworthy. Mm. So if we start looking at that and they say, we've got to do stuff to be worthy of trust. And I want people to trust people because of who they are, not what they are as well. Mm. Them as an individual. And then from that, once you understand that, then how can you create solutions that are aligned to your values, but the needs of other people's as well? So, and then it's been creative in how we think, because I do think we are, creativity is educated out of us and we are all creative. So it's helping. And I don't think there is a box. There is no such thing as a box. So if you can ask questions in a different way and help people think differently, 
you can help them take away their box that they've created in their life. So mm. I don't want people to think outside the box. I just want people to to help people get rid of the box and just think. Yeah, and and it's really fascinating, isn't it? Actually, that um, when we're young, you know, innately, I think m- many kids love art and they love drawing and they'll just pick up anything and just start scribbling you know I I remember like don't tell anyone but I remember when I was younger I went through a phase of drawing on my mum's walls and she was so patient with me because she didn't tell me to stop I must have obviously grown out of it because I don't do that in my own home now (laughs) but uh, it's it's there within us and I think you're absolutely right in that school and education in the way that it is at the moment kind of it stifles creativity. It expects us to be able to, you know, maybe focus in on things like science and essay writing and stuff like that. But the kind of creative angle, which is an area that I'm personally starting to explore again, um, brings just so much. It kind of invites a different way of looking even at how one reads and how one takes in knowledge. Yeah, and I think also we can sometimes have a very thin view of what we call creativity. And to me, creativity is imagination. If you can imagine, you can be creative, and we can all be. So I can't remember the guy's name. Um, He was an American scientist, 1950s. And he was asked to look at how NASA could um, put something into the recruiting process because they were solving problems we didn't even know we had when they were uh, the 50s and 60s to put somebody on the moon. So he created this very simple test um, and if you were a creative genius which was the level the highest level of the test and you went through and you worked for nasa and these are the people who could have that creative thinking so th- think it outside the box for want of a better phrase and he said well, this test is easy i'll take it to kids and i can't remember the exact so four to five year olds about 98 percent of the children passed at the creative genius test. wow when you got up to about 17 it was down to 14 percent gosh and they're same children the same children and then he did it with a group of adults average age of about 26 or 31 can't remember and they 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 passed two percent oh my gosh so when you're looking at what it actually is and how we're thinking because we've got things like best practice we've got things like um that's the way we've done it around here we've got things like common understanding and those so i think a whole world is built upon these assumptions that we have you know book by gary klein about seeing what others don't how many of the assumptions that we're building our understanding, our construct of the world are built on false truths mm. that we believe to be true, but really they aren't. And sometimes because those false truths are quite strong, it takes an awful lot of time to sort of break them down and to be willing to sort of willing to live in the ambiguity of, do you know what, what I know now is the best of my knowledge today, but my understanding could change tomorrow. Mm. And that's Okay. And it's about having that flexibility in thinking. Yeah, and, and you're kind of reminding me of um, Matthew Said's book, Rebel Ideas, in which he speaks about kind of um, cognitive diversity and that if we're all thinking along the same lines uh, and how groups are created and teams are created and and if you all have a similar kind of you know experience or background, then actually you're all going to think the same and that, there's nothing worse uh, to stifle creativity than having everybody kind of like, you know, uh, cookie cut kind of versions of each other, even if they look different. And so 
for me, one of the the most kind of incisive things um, that I try to do when I'm putting together a team is have uh, diversity from a number of different range ranges because I think that brings in this piece that you're kind of speaking about in terms of creativity. And so my perception for problem solving and, and looking at some of the kind of big challenges that we face globally is that we need to bring back creativity into um, uh, leadership teams and, and organizations and and actually even communities and families as well. Yeah, I mean, the creativity, and one of the things that needs to be in place for that to happen, so as Luke at the model, is trust. Yeah. Because people need to feel in a way where they're trusted so they can feel comfortable sharing their ideas and where they can feel comfortable this is a safe place to do this. And so I think we asked about creativity, but said what, what, what needs to be in place to deliver that? And I think sometimes we, um, that's the bit we miss. I said, what needs to be in place to help people be creative? You can't just, ask, we can ask people, but the chance of it being that successful is limited, even within mm-hmm. ourselves. So do we trust ourselves to let our thinking go? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I actually don't know how to answer that question um, because it's such a big, deep one. And um, I, I I do think that w- what we tend to do, and particularly I, I um, found it really hard n- not to do this when I was writing my book last year, which is I think we self-edit. And so one may have ideas and kind of thoughts and we, we won't actually move them from our mind to paper or they get lost. And some of that, I think, is either... Uh, down to conscious or subconscious lack of trust within ourselves but there is a moment when you and I don't know whether it's trust or confidence or or self-belief or whatever but there is a moment that comes where all of a sudden um you do start to trust yourself a little bit and so I wonder what words of advice you may have for people who don't necessarily trust themselves and what can they do to then move to that place where they starting to do that i think first thing is understand why you're doing what you're doing so have an outcome in mind i'm doing this because and if you can understand if you do understand your own values then you can trust yourself so that whatever i'm doing is in line with my values and therefore i i have confidence in at least i can sleep at night yeah when you that's easy to say until you have a dilemma and that's where it becomes difficult because you have to make a decision about a decision about this or this and i think that's we could then go into a whole world of ethics Mm. Uh, and it's when when is it so is that the legality and ethics of something just because something's legal is it right Mm. Uh, which is a whole different ball game into businesses and stuff that we do um and i think i can't remember where i was I think I was in the Balkans and their law, their approach to law is completely different to ours. Our law tells us what we can't do. Their law tells us what they can do. Mm. So when we were, so I was talking, I was doing a, a, a um, I was there for doing some work for the EU. And one of the questions is, well, does the law say you can't? And no, and they said, no, but the law doesn't say we can either. So to the law to them is the enabler. Uh, to the law for us 
is the restrictor. So even that, did the, how you look at the legalities changes how we perceive. Um, so I know if you're confident in yourself, just practice as well. So what is it? And as try not to self-edit, which is a, just put it down, at least get it off your head into paper, then look at it and just say, um, and what's important. So I think define, define what success is. Because I think if you define what success is, it it will either enable it will enable you to do certain things because it's aligned aligned with what your success is. So for me in my business, success isn't the amount of money I earn. Success I will define success by how many people I help make an impact with. Mm-hmm. So once you change that thought process about how you're going to measure what success looks like, it it opens up a whole new way of looking at stuff. And I would say, ask. Ask yourself questions. Be willing to ask questions and take time to reflect and develop um, develop curiosity and be willing to ask why. Because you've got kids, I have kids. Whenever you ask a child to do something, you ask why. Mm. That reason behind why is it, it doesn't get lost as we get older. We get told not to ask it. Mm-hmm. But that need for understanding of the because is is... Is it doesn't disappear as we get older. We just, as I say, we get struck, we get told not to ask those questions. So be willing to ask yourself why again. Mm, that's wonderful. And and just kind of another thought on parenting, just listening to what you were saying about the the Balkans and how their approach to law is more about what you can do as opposed to, for example, I, I, I think, you know, in the UK, we're told the things that we can't do. I think that actually does have an influence on parenting style. Because um, I'm thinking about, you know, how how am I? I, I would love to say I'm always telling my th- kids, you know, what they can do. But actually, there's always a, a very clear boundary. And I will tell them as much what they can't do as what they can. And then there's a negotiation in between. And I think just kind of taking what you've shared and applying it to parenting could potentially change the experience of the parent and the child. Yeah, and it, again, it depends on how old you are as a child. Or well, not how old you are as a child, as how old your children are. It depends on where those conversations go and what, how, um, how much scope you can give them for thinking because they have to have the cognitive ability to do so. Yeah, I mean, my kids are teenagers, so there's all so many different things that are going on about that right now. <laughs> um, I mean, I used to find in the prisons, so an example in the prison service, we, we were on what we call visits. So we were having prisoners were having their families come and visit and we had a prisoner on a basic regime so he was entitled to a 45 minute visit and in, in a two and a half hour session so we usually put them at the front so we could observe them then we can tell them their 45 minutes are up and they should leave got to 45 minutes i said your visit's up he said i'm not going anywhere i'm finishing so i'm now in a room of about five six hundred people and i've got a prisoner saying he's refusing to comply with a lawful order so decision time, what do you do? Now, if you decide to try and physically remove him as children, so what are they, what's their experience of visiting their family going to be like in prison? How much, how might they do that? Is there a chance of children running around getting injured? Is there a chance that people might think that we're being heavy handed and it could escalate out of control? Mm-hmm. So all of these things are going through your heads. And I just went to the guy, I said, that's fine. You can stay if you wish. I said, but you're on basic. 
which is seven days of restricted, 14 days of restricted. If you stay, you will have another 14 days of restrictions because mm-hmm. you can do it after 14 days. So you'll get two hours off me. I'll get seven days off you. And that will continue. And because you'll be in this in visits, your next visit for three months will be closed. So you'll be behind a, you'll be behind a wall, uh, a glass perspex, a divide between you and your visitors. And I said, madam, I said, if you'd refuse to leave, I said, you will go on the banned visitors list because you are not complying with the rules. So those are the consequences if you stay. Which you can do if you want, because I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to force you out. You can stay here mm-hmm. for another two hours. That's your choice. But that's what's going to happen. And I said, and this is why, and these are the rules, and this is what enables me to do this. Mm-hmm. Or you can finish your visit now. I'm not going to report you. I've had a conversation with you. You've changed your mind in a reasonable way. And you can come off basic if you abide by all the rules, and you can continue, and your next visit will be two hours. Mm-hmm. What would you like to do? Love it. So it's all about them giving people the very clear understanding. Of, and I, I do believe that helps people make decisions because you're saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give the consequences of actions. I'm going to leave that decision yours. Yeah. And it's then easier because I'm, the risks of that going wrong are minimal. But then you're giving somebody autonomy in their life. You're giving somebody that and you're actually helping some of these prisoners that are in there because of that lack of cognitive capabilities. You're encouraging them to have that cognitive thought process. Mm. look at consequences actions and think beyond what i want now and what's the impact of my decisions on me and people around me so i'm a great believer in sort of using consequences as a way of helping people make decisions Mm, that's brilliant you can do this or you can do that choice is yours if you do this this is probably going to happen if you do that that's going to happen but in parenting if you say you're going to do something do it or else then that becomes, and don't use it as a threat. Yeah, 100%. It's not a threat. It's a way of helping children think. Mm-hmm. And then actually they take ownership of the decision as well, because what you're describing is something that I've tried to do since my kids were were young, and it removes the stress from yourself. I mean, you always have an understanding of kind of like the option that you want them to pick, but just the fact that you've presented them with options and you've given them ownership of it, I think it removes some of the stress, certainly did for me anyway, you know, of of kind of like not getting what it is that you want. And one of the things I'd always do is kind of present my kids with options. And even I was even happy with the worst one, you know, because it doesn't have an impact on me. It has an impact on them and what the what's available to them. So this is brilliant and uh really really powerful in terms of, of how you've shared it um let, let me ask you um a question in that um i'd love to know what's a, a, a kind of belief that you've had that you've held quite strongly and and that has changed over time oh i don't know i don't know what that is I think it's um, cool. cool. That's one of those questions. I don't think I can answer that one yet because I think that I really need to go back and dig through um, how I've evolved over the years um, and what did I think when I was younger and what do I think now? Where's the difference and why? What's caused that? Um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, it, it is a it is a tough one. I mean, so so for example, for me, um, my answer to that is that I always used to think that I was invincible when I was in my twenties and that I could do anything that I wanted. Whereas now, I'm like, you know what? It's not that simple. <laughs> I actually probably have the ability to do uh, many more things, um, but the the number of stuff that I want to do is so much m- more. Uh, refined if that makes sense and I, and I and I certainly do not view myself as invincible anymore well I played rugby when I was younger so I definitely am not invincible I got hurt many many times <laughs> and I really, as I got to my mid-20s to late 20s I realized the invincibility if I did have any was wearing thin and recovering from a game was taking far too long <laughs> so yeah, well, you play a game for a Saturday and you take two weeks to get over it you think you know what I think your body's telling you that is enough you're not doing enough training. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I've sort of worked is, I think when I was younger, I just said, yeah, it's fine. I can do stuff. Uh, just give it to me and I'll work it out and I'll sort it out. And I've got that to a degree now, but I'm much more aware of limitations in which I have and where my strengths lie. So I think that's probably, it comes about to what you were talking about when we were younger. Um, I think I'm much more, well, I'm definitely much more aware of myself than I was when I was younger. Much, much, much more aware. But I think when I was younger, it was like things came quite easy to me. I never really had to push myself. So like my exams, I just, I did no reason. I didn't know. I didn't do any research. I did no study. I just did my exams. Wow. Because um, I didn't have to. I was, I was fortunate enough so I could remember stuff. If I found it interesting, I knew it. I, and I just had this, I loved learning, but I didn't realize I loved learning. I just read bits and pieces because mm. I did not read fiction. That's interesting. You, you do not read fiction. No, I haven't read a fiction book for probably about 20, 30 years. You know, that's something that we have in common because um, I can't stand fiction. And uh, yeah, yeah, actually, my husband predominantly reads fiction, but um, every now and then there'll come a book recommendation and, you know, it'll come from 10 different people. And even for me to hit the buy button, <laughs> there's a level of resistance there. And I don't know why. <laughs> no, I think I think stuff, I find stuff interesting if I can learn and I don't see fiction as learning. And it, it, there is, I think there definitely is because you can learn. You learn how people narrate, you can learn about language, you learn about storytelling, you can learn so much in fiction and there's, there's parables and learnings about that. But to me, I just want to know, I want to learn something. So I want it presented in a way that's designed to help me learn. Um, Isn't that fascinating? Because I, I, I love um, autobiographies and I, and I kind of told myself that that's a bit of a compromise in that, you know, at least I'm learning a story or about somebody's life and it's real, but there's always going to be some form of lessons that I can draw from that. And that is um, an alternative to nonfiction books because we all know that, you know, sometimes just reading nonfiction can just become a bit of a bore. Well, not for the nonfiction fanatics out there or people who like nonfiction, it's probably not boring because they get involved in a story and they say it takes them into somewhere and, they, and I don't also, I don't, I, I find it difficult to visualize a story that I can't see. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, a, a guy I used to work with is an NLP master practitioner typey person. And he said, uh, he, he thinks it's because not that I struggle to visualize, but I just do it so fast. I can't see it. Wow. 
my mind because he said I, I took pointed to something he said well you've, you've seen where it is and you're pointing there. Well, I can't see anything now he said you've probably just done it so fast so your brain because you go back because I'm I'm certified in Gambit Strengths as you know it's like me and Jack mm. and most of my top 10 are quick thinking top 10s so things like ideation um, and strategy and stuff and putting dots together is right think quickly and then the more reflective type of thinking or not the reflective the more considered thinking sort of skills and strengths are far lower down in my um in my strengths profile wow gosh it's funny because you're describing um some of what i do on paper you're describing that as if it happens in your mind so like for me to unpack ideas, I always have to have like a, a pencil and a bit of paper and literally just draw. And if I don't do, and I'm not the best at drawing, but if I don't do that, then I can lose that idea or lose the kind of unpacking of it. Oh, I t- ideas to me are 10 to a penny. Mm. I, I don't, the, I, I have so many I just think oh, I'll remember the ones I need to remember and if I can't it doesn't matter and it changes and evolves and eureka moments I think so I look at ideas as um, just something and they're they have they're okay I can share ideas because I get some people struggle with that ideation type of thing yeah um, and it's an area I I'm okay with but not coming up with new stuff it's about so the way I look at the world is like a dot to dot mm. So everything you've got is stuff. So I don't like compartmentalizing. I do not like putting things in a box. So when you learn something, you don't learn it in that context alone. You've learned something or you've developed a skill. Cool. So when I do stuff and I might have experienced something, and I think that's helped me develop some of the stuff I do with some of the training and stuff I do. Um, so, oh, hang on, that sounds... And then, because I was talking to... Um, when we were doing our gallops, we had to do a presentation. We were talking about... Um, you had to present something about all the, how the strengths work together. And I thought, oh, this is, oh, this is so boring because it's just gonna we're gonna do on a flip chart because that's what people tend to do: flip chart, list it. Somebody gets up and talks, and I went, oh, I can't be bothered with this. So, I just had an idea, and it just said, oh, we could do blind date, mm. and we could do strengths blind date because I just said, how do things work together? Dating is about working together. Yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. So I just we I just came up with this idea and we did blind blind date strength strengths blind dating. So somebody would say, "This is what I'm trying to achieve. These are my strengths," and then they'd have three contestants saying, "This is how their strengths can work with theirs to achieve that goal," and then they would have to choose the one they wanted. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it really does. And that that was something that was formulated just like that because I think as you look at something from here, you look at sort of where the connections are and how you can then put two or three things together to create something new rather than so, so I think someone like you and Musk is much more about creating new things completely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think for me, if I'm reflecting on what you're saying, I I'm kind of a little bit like you in that I can see there's knowledge over here. There's knowledge over here. And what are the synergies? What happens? What's the goodness that can be um, kind of uh, have the light shine on it by bringing different areas together um, and that's where I think there's a lot of magic. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, 
I think, yeah, because it takes away those boundaries, doesn't it? We, we, we yeah. have boxes. And I think, for an example, obviously, I come from a learning development background. I said marketing is an area learning development can really, really learn from. I mean, really learn from. Because if you think about what marketing does, they look at segmenting people. They do CRMs about managing customer relationships, understanding people's needs. That's an L&D job internally. So why can't we have an internal CRM for our, our employees run by L&D? Then you could say to somebody, oh, we know it in December we're doing our performance reviews. So in November, everyone who's a manager is tagged and you send them content in November that helps them with the challenge they're going to face in December. That's a marketing ploy. But it's, So you take the principles of something, put it into somewhere else and say, how can we apply those principles? That's why I don't like best practice. I like best principles. So principles gives you freedom. Practice is a yay-nay. Mm. Um, because I was reading somewhere else and this is, I, I was on recruitment. This person didn't even do a video, which is best practice. And I said, well, a video interview. I said, well, I thought, why, why is it necessary to do a video interview? I say, what's the purpose of the video interview? Mm. What does that deliver that makes it best practice? It's not the video interview itself. Video interview is a, a vehicle. Best practice is, is the impact that gives you, of, I would think. Yeah, and I think innovation comes from not always following best practice. So, for example, like, I mean, you know this, Scott, because we're working together, but some of the work that we're doing in the diversity, inclusion and equity space, uh, I I don't want to follow best practice because best practice is not working, you know, and it's how do we change the, the language? How do we um, actually kind of do something to meet the aspirations rather than kind of just, you know, putting through what's already been done in a photocopier and serving it again. Well, we talk about, yeah, and I think there's a lot of issues around sort of leadership as well, um, how organisations are run where you say it's obviously not working, but we're throwing millions of pounds at this problem yep. with very similar solutions. Mm. But obviously they can't be working because we've still got the same problems we had um, years ago. We still got the same problems with leadership. We still got the same problems with management. We still got the same problems with climate warming. We still, I mean, things are moving along in some of these big issues. Um, but I think equality is one of the issues that is definitely COVID has shone a light on because I think it's highlighted some of the inequalities that when everything is going well, we can paper over the cracks. Um, and it's when things don't go well that, um, mm. And it all boils down to one of my, my key, one of my key values is fairness. Mm. It's definitely one of my key values is this fair. I mean, how I work with people, what I do. Um, so if I, if you give me an invoice and they say it's a seven days and it's a small business, I pay that invoice the day I receive it. Mm. I say, cause that's what I would like to happen to me. I know mine don't get paid cause I work for, at the moment I work for bigger companies. So they have their process. So it kind of kills my cash flow. but you're sitting there going, you've got to be fair. Small businesses struggle with cash flow, So, take a decision that's aligned to what you think is fairness and it might damage you short term. But what you've done is I now, the people I use as my suppliers because of the way I treat them, the way I do stuff, the relationship we got is really, really strong. And therefore when I do say to somebody, Oh, is it okay? If they're like, yeah, I've done that for you, no charge. So mm. what you've done is you've built that relationship. And that's basically what my model is all about is helping do that. So if you think about your brand, you have a personal brand, you have an organization brand, it's a promise. How do you act to deliver on that promise? Mm. 
gosh, that's such a, a deep, rich question. And, uh, you know, I, I love what you're sharing about um, how you kind of pay invoices when they come in, because I firmly believe in the kind of concept of do unto others as you would want done to you, you know. Ish. I well, I think if it's within point. your gift, you know, and if it's easy for you to do, then absolutely do it. Like if there's going to be a cost for you or then you've got to make kind of some decisions. But um, if, if you would like to be treated in a particular way, then and it's easy for you to do it to others, why not? Absolutely. And I think also getting an understanding of other people. So like if you wanted to help gain an understanding of respect, so you might have a value of respect in your business, in your team. And if you said to people, what is respect? You would, and you got a team of 10, you'd have 10 different answers. So 10 people are doing what they think is respectful because it's in line with their personal values. However, it might be disrespectful for other people accidentally. Mm. So unless we get an understanding of what respect means as a group and then have those conversations about what that means and then we can agree a way forward about how we can mutually respect each other and create that framework or that 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 understanding and that's not difficult you could ask a simple question you can say to people i imagine you're in the team you say to people right, what i'd like you to do is and no names because it's about safety is i want you to write down a specific incident doesn't matter how big or how small where you felt disrespected it could be somebody didn't open the door for you. It could be did somebody didn't smile or somebody didn't say thank you because most of the times it's minute actions that uh, are repeated over time that create friction. Mm. It's really big things because we can, we, most of the times we can stop doing big things because we understand the impact. It's the micro behaviors that uh, have a cumulative effect on, on the relationships. And then the problem is if it's not dealt with at a short time, then that, that problem becomes the relationship. And it's that escalation that you want to try and stop. So if you get a list of all this and then you can have a list of your team said, okay, these are all disrespectful behaviors. So what we're going to do is not do any of that. We're going to do the opposite instead and have a list of behaviors. Then all of a sudden you're creating very micro behaviors within your team that's demonstrating respect to each other that does not disrespect anybody. And you've created a respect charter. Mm. So simple. So, so, so simple. Yeah. And interestingly, actually, I... I remember doing an exercise with um, my family where we kind of looked at values and we articulated values and then said, well, what does it mean? What's behavior looking like in terms of describing the values that we want to have as a family? And I, mean, I, I know I'm kind of taking what you've shared from the leadership context and applying it in a slightly different scenario, but it's important in some ways. So one of the things is like, you know, if you if you um, eat something, don't just put your dishes in the sink, rinse them and put them in the dishwasher. And that's a demonstration of respect for other people in the house. And so, how, you know, how are you able to respect people within your family, people that you care about, um, anyone, really, people that you work with? And, and I think one thing that's particularly challenging at the moment in the pandemic, because we don't have those physical relationships anymore with our work colleagues we're not sharing a actual kind of uh, a, a, a real room with them that that kind of showing of respect is a bit more challenging so i'd love to hear what your thoughts are on how you can do that virtually i think you can still have the same conversation virtually and mm. you can create you can create uh you can use some like mural or padlet to actually create these boards 
allow people to be as creative as they like. And then you can say, okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to, like this week. So um, I think get an agreement on what you're going to look at as a value. Because I think Simon Cernick says it really nicely. He says, values and nouns, what matters are the verbs. Mm. Because that's what we do. So don't tell people what your values are. Tell people what you'd like them to do. Because that gives people concrete action. So don't talk about trust. They don't lie to each other. Mm. I will always tell the truth. I mean, I think that's a bit of a simplification of what trust is. I think trust is much more complicated than that. But that's, that's an important aspect of trust. And by the way, so is gossiping. <laughs> gossiping is, a, is such a, one of the easiest ways to damage trust because mm. if you gossip to me, I'll just say, well, you say that about, uh, what, what are you saying about me to other people? Therefore, I trust you less with information that may be sensitive. Just to be aware. Um, so I think you can still have those conversations and you can use Padlets and even, and in, I think in a, in a virtual world, it's just a change of behaviors, doesn't there? So things like turn up for your meetings on time, have your camera on, mm-hmm. don't eat when you're in the middle of meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't answer your emails while we're in the middle of a discussion. I can see when people are answering emails because people say, well, I'll do the emails here in front of the camera. That's fine, but you can still see the eyes doing this. Mm-hmm. The eyes going left to right as they're reading and people got multiple screens going on. Um, as if you would in a normal meeting. So I don't think, so you can still create those virtual behaviors and what you don't have is a physical one. And then sometimes what you will also have is a physical stroke virtual hybrid teams. And I think that's where it's really important we have those conversations about how we can work together as a group where the people who are working virtually don't feel as if they don't belong because it's, as you say, so much easier to create a oneness when you can sit around a coffee and some desk chatting about what you did at the weekend and everything else that mm. virtual doesn't make as easy because you have to schedule these calls. Whereas a lot of them in the workplace can happen impromptu when it's all of a sudden quiet or somebody says, oh, I've just thought something and oh, I've just heard this. And then it starts those impromptu conversations which can be more difficult online because people are scheduled. Mm. Although one one thing that I've noticed as we're kind of like coming out of the pandemic is I my behaviour has shifted in that um, I've just started to message people and say, can I give you a ring? Mm-hmm. You know, and so we used to maybe do a bit more of that. And so it, the quick conversations over the phone actually are building deep connections as much as the Zoom meetings. But, you know, we're in front of a screen now so much at the moment Um I think we forgot that a phone is available as well as an alternative. I had a call the other day with somebody who felt really wrong with my phone is ringing. <laughs> I can't see this person. <laughs> but yeah, and I do think we do, we do, I think everyone got excited about Zoom and what it does and Teams and what, whichever platform you use. But it's like anything, it has its place, it has its advantages, but we can communicate pe- with people over a multiple of mediums. And it's about looking at what we're, what's the purpose of this, this communication with this person? Or so I, I, Again, Stephen Covey, keep the end in mind and always look at what's the impact or the thing you're trying to achieve and then work backwards to find the best way of doing it. And I think asking yourself, goes back to what you're saying about trust, asking yourself those questions, I think helps you unlock potential answers. Whereas if you say, I'm going to talk to somebody, I'm just going to Zoom them. What you're doing is think about the how and then that becomes a process Whereas you think about the why I'm doing it and then you build the process underneath that to support that outcome, I think is a, is a better way of um, helping develop creativity in the way you think. And because 
also, if you think about negotiation, if you look at being principled negotiation, there's movement, whereas if you're positional, there's lack of movement. We tend to say what we want. And when we decide to say we need something, that's usually a strategy to achieve a goal. Mm. So when people say, I want this, that want is normally their strategy to achieve something. Mm. Work out what they're trying to achieve, then they become less stuck on the strategy. But if you talk about the strategy, they get stuck on the actions. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, sometimes... well, in fact, all the time, just knowing and articulating the outcome kind of is the most important thing. And many people don't know what what it is that they want. And so they get caught up in the tools. And I've seen this so many times, you know, is the conversation now about in-person or virtual? And I'm like, no, what is it you are trying to do? You know? what's, why, what's the conversation for? Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the outcome of this conversation? I mean, why are you having it? Yeah. And they might say, just to catch up. I said, okay, a Zoom call or a phone call? Well, a phone call would be cool. Why just phone them then? 100%, 100%. Yeah, and I, I do agree with you. I think it goes back to what you're saying about your books as well, about that results as being that outcome focus. And then, uh, and people do get stuck in tools. Mm. The way we do it, and we use the tool, and then we try to make that tool work for a multitude of scenarios where it really isn't the best one. Yeah, 100%. So just coming back to, to books very briefly, I'd love to know, what are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I'm kind of flipping uh, because I've been doing some doing some stuff. So I'm dipping into some things. Um, so I've, I've, there's a thing, a book called the, the Model 6D, which is about breakthrough learning. And I think I shared when we were talking together, I shared that the, the questions from that because I love that because, again, it's about purpose outcome. And also from Edgar Schein, Process Consultancy. Gosh, that's going back a few years, isn't it? Uh, revisited. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's going back, was not quite as far as the first one, but I like it because it's about what I believe in, it's about building and help, building relationships to help. So it's been mm-hmm. a supportive relationship at, uh, approach. And again, because I'm, I'm delivering for somebody I work with, because I do a lot of associate work, um, doing some stuff for people in the Middle East about learning and development. So I'm trying to enrich the content for them as well so that they get um, something they can actually take back and make sense of. Love it. And and what's your favourite book? Um, again, I think it depends on the topic, but there are there are several several books I really I really like um, Seeing What Others Don't by Gary Klein. Mm. Um, and... Again, to help people think, there's a book called The Little Book of Thunks, which is a fantastic little book. Um, it's really easy to read. Um, and the thunk is a question that stops you in your tracks and makes you think. I love it. The power. So never underestimate the power of questions. So take time in crafting very good questions. And then it helps you uncover. Because our, our mind is designed hardwired to answer questions. So... I'm a believer in that the, the, the questions or the language you use guides the mind. So if you look at where would I like this person to think about or consider, then the question you ask will help shift that person into that or you can guide them into that area. Because I'm a believer in you can't make anybody do anything. Mm. Um, all you can do is create an environment that encourages them to take it, an action that is, you can have better outcomes for everybody rather than 
whatever it is that they're currently yeah. doing. Um, so, <laughs> they're, they're, they, yeah, yeah, I think they're the two books I really like. Um, and Stephen Covey, but only because about three or four of the rules of his book, mm. I think, are good. Yeah, brilliant shares. And and what's coming to me um, as you kind of speaking about questions is that you know when we're, we're you know any young child is just going to keep why 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 and then there's the idea of the seven whys and what do we do as adults we kind of and even just a simple question you have a problem and you say to yourself why and then the the next why kind of leads from that and and it's it really is about the power of the question that you're asking and and how that is kind of created and and how much time you give to it and so um when we spend time reflecting and thinking about, you know, whatever it is, it's always the question that you're asking, even yourself, you know, that that forms the reflection that you have and delineates whether it's superficial or really kind of quite life-changing. Absolutely. And I think, and, and that's why I love experiential learning. So you can have an experiential, an experiential activity for people. Um, and the questions you ask at the end guide the learning from that experience. So you can use the same activity in multiple different ways just by asking a slightly different question at the end for people to reflect on. Mm. So you could ask, there's, a, there's an activity I used to work with uh, friends of mine, it's called uh, Yes and Yes But. And it's, so, it's such good fun. Um, and when you talk about the yes and, you say, well, what happens? And you can talk about that, but then you can ask another question and it talks about the creativity. You ask it this way, then it starts talking about uh, the, the feeling safe. You ask this question, then they have the experience of this. So you can have the same experience with people. And depending on the question you ask, encourages them to look at that experience through a specific lens and take the learning through that lens. So if you ask a different question, they're looking at the same experience through a different lens, which will give them a different outcome. Mm. Which is why I love them, because they are so flexible. Yeah, that's brilliant. And um, I'm going to try and kind of put how to do that within the show notes because it's probably something that, that people can do in a variety of, of different um, situations within their life. Um, I've got a couple of more questions that I'd like to ask you before we wrap up. And the first one is, what advice would your 16-year-old self give to you if they saw you now? Don't doubt yourself so much. And what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self if you met them now? Um, I think don't sweat it because uh, life is too short. So you are going to make mistakes in life. You're No, not mistakes. You're going to make decisions that are not going to have the outcome that you would expect. Um, but there, you will. there's always something you can do. So no matter where you think you are, there is always, always, always something you can do. So I think that gives people, uh, give you back that sense of control. So never say there's a problem. Just say, because nobody likes a conversation. It starts with what I can't do. Just say, okay, that can't happen, but what can happen? So I think that is probably one of the most powerful questions I would actually give myself as a 21-year-old. Okay, so what can I do? Love it, love it. And then just perhaps a few more kind of, light-hearted questions which might actually be even harder than some of the the other ones i've asked what's your favorite song and why my favorite song why 
Who Wants to Live Forever by Queen. Mm. And what's your, what would be your kind of like ultimate three-course meal? Well, that's a tough one because this is, when we were in lockdown, uh, me and uh, Karen, my other half, we... Um, that we went through from Christmas Day or Boxing Day through to the 1st of April this year without cooking the same meal twice. You need to write a cookbook. No, I nicked it off cookbook. So I just have <laughs> a reference of all the other different cookbooks. I didn't make anything up. My brother's a much better chef than I am because he understands all the how things work. I don't understand how all the food and the chemicals and flavours work together so I can't create stuff on my own, but I do like playing around. Uh, so the ultimate meal, probably a salmon starter. Mm. Uh, because I like salmon as a thing, especially if it's something like a pasty, so it's not too strong. So smoked salmon or a, a salmon tart type thing. Main course, so this is going to go so ecleptical. Maybe Thai. Because I love Thai food because it's strong, but also there's a there's a there's a subtlety of flavors that come underneath it, I think, that you don't get. And puddings, well, I'm not a great pudding person. I'm not a great um dessert person, but you can't beat. I don't, it's, it's got to be apple crumble and custard. Mm. It's got to be an apple crumble, apple pie, or um, something like a sponge pudding or something like that. So you can definitely tell my school days are still coming in. I still obviously, obviously hark back to it, the old school dinners and say <laughs> that still, but I love apple pie, apple pie, apple crumble. If it's that, that's on the menu we are having to put in, then I just, I just look for anything with like apple crumble done. Oh, lovely. So I, I, I know that one day when you come to my house and to eat, I know exactly what I'm going to give you for pudding. Apple crumble, that'd be fine. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I do sod the rest of it. Just give me the apple crumble. I'll be able to... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Apple starter, main and dinner. Um, what's uh, one place or what's one thing on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Um, interesting enough, the first question you asked, the way you answered the question guided the mind because it went straight to place. Um, Cuba. Mm. Now, also is obviously my friend of mine went to Cuba many, many years ago, and he backpacked around Cuba, and he said he loved it. So I said, always like to go there, and then life got in the way, and things happened, and kids, and commitments, and everything else. So I'm now a bit older, well, a lot older. Uh, my commitments are going down because my kids are all grown up, so they're 28 and 21. They don't live at home. Uh, Karen's kids are 30 and 28. Wow. So. Uh, and I, I would like to get to Cuba before the Americans make it a tourist destination. Mm. If that makes sense. Because I think the Cuba, the way it has, and the sort of the vibe of what Cuba is, and it's because America's now opened up, hasn't it? It's stopped some of the, um, yeah. some of the uh, restrictions it had and some of the, the trade uh, barriers to it. So I think it's, and because it's not far from the America, from mainland America I do think it will it may turn into a bit of a touristy place so I'd like to go and see Cuba and, and sort of do something like backpacking or cycle around parts of Europe which I quite yeah. like and I, and I think recently you had a cycling um, trip as well didn't you? you some of the pictures you shared on social media were just so wonderful to see Isle of Wight yeah apparently I didn't realise uh, the Lonely Planet voted it one of the test 10 best cycle locations in the world. So it's very in the world, Jeremy Clarkson going on there. Um, and I think that's a, the advantage. And I think one of the things about COVID is sort of help people realise that we live in a beautiful country. 
hundred percent. There is so much on offer. Yeah, the weather's a bit dodgy at times, and you never know what you're going to get. But I mean, I've cycled Lands End to John O'Groats about wow. six years ago, and it's a fantastic way of experiencing what we have because you're not in a car thingy for it, but you're not walking, so you can actually cover a reasonable distance. Um, but when you look at the world through the a cyclist's eyes, it's a different world because you recognise every hill. <laughs> you know that well. That's a hill. That would be quite tough. You actually look at things like, oh, I think I might be able to cycle up that one, or I'm not going anywhere near that. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and Karen and I are going away. Uh, we're cycling around Loch Ness. Oh wow, that's going to be amazing! Like I've been up to Loch Ness. It's just so stunning up there. Gorgeous, and they're closing the roads. Wow. So no cars. Wow. A thousand people. COVID restrictions allowing. Yeah. But they're all being lifted now, whether they go back or not, I don't know. So we're doing that and then we're off to Fort William for four days. Oh, some of my favourite places in the world. I, 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 yeah, can't wait to get to go back to Scotland. So It is one of the most beautiful countries in the world, I think. It's got so mm. much to offer. Like mm. Edinburgh is a beautiful city. Glasgow, I don't know Glasgow so much, but Edinburgh more. Highlands are fantastic. Even the lowlands, when you snake up the M74, once you get past, mm. you just snake through the little mountains. That's yeah. Amazing. I mean, I lived in Glasgow for 10 years, so I'll always say Glasgow is one of my favourite places. It's, uh, I kind of view it as where I grew up, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and just listening to, to your sharing about kind of, you know, going to the Isle of Wight really makes me think, well, sometimes we don't appreciate the things that are so close to us. And so I just offer that as a thought for so many different things just think you know what's in your own home what's on your doorstep what's close to you that maybe you're not appreciating at the moment um uh one final question and then i'm going to ask you where we can find you and uh, where listeners can kind of take full advantage of the work that you've got to offer and um, but what advice do you have for me Cool. That's a that's a deep question. Hardly any. I think I I think I see you as more of a mentor for me than the other way around. To be honest, with you. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm always learning so much from you, Scott. You have no idea. I just pontificate and sort of. I'm a stream of conscious uh, stream of consciousness. It must be a nightmare interviewing me because I never stay on track. I just go off everywhere. Never. I even half answer questions and go somewhere else, um, which is where the ideation kicks in. Um, I think for you, just keep up the good work. And the advice is be courageous mm. in what you're trying to achieve. Have the courage to continue. Because I think looking at, obviously, uh, we're working together on something at the moment, but the way you're looking at doing it and what you stand for is 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 really uh, inspiring to people and be courageous in staying there. And it will be a rocky road at times but it's something you truly, truly believe in. And you've, obviously you've done the research and you've done everything else. And as we said, the way that it normally works doesn't work. Um, but to be that outlier takes bravery. Mm-hmm. It does take bravery. And you're going to get knockbacks from people who are going to say, no, we want to go to the tried and trust, trusted method because that's what we're expecting. So, um, yeah, so stay Thank courageous. You. Thank you. I'm going to take that little bit, I think, and put it somewhere on my phone. So when I'm having that moment of a crisis or something like that, just listen to that again, because it's it's really good advice. And I think you probably read me like a book. So 
on that, let me ask you, where where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? Um, if somebody uh, is coming across you for the first time, what is the best way to kind of discover a bit more about Scott Hunter? Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn because most people in the world, or well, 300 million of us are on there. Um, so yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. And my website is www.theinnovatecrowd.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a real gift for me to to speak with you any time that we do that. It really is. And, and uh, there'll be links to everything that you've shared and the kind of key resources and things within the show notes. And uh, I actually am going to invite everyone to go back and listen to this again so that they can just look at uh, some of what you've shared with a slightly different perspective as well, because there was just so much goodness in there. Um, thank you for agreeing to be uh, a guest on the With Sayada podcast. And I can't wait to speak to you again. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. And take care. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.